The Guardian. Hi, Science Weekly producer Madeline here. If you've been listening to our podcasts over the past few months, you'll know we've been covering COVID-19. It's been fascinating looking at the science behind the outbreak, but whilst me and the rest of the production team, as well as our hosts Nicola, Ian, Hannah and Sarah, have been busy reading papers and speaking to experts, lots of really interesting ethical questions have cropped up. We wanted to explore some of these issues and take some time to think about what lies ahead in our new normal. Which brings us to this episode. Today, you'll be hearing the first part of a conversation about the ethical questions surrounding track and trace apps. We'll be putting out the second half on Thursday. In the UK, track and trace apps have been a key part of the government's strategy for combating coronavirus and easing lockdown restrictions. However, in June, the National Health Services app was trialled unsuccessfully in the Isle of Wight, and the development of a second version began using Google and Apple's Application Programming Interface, or API. Many people will have heard about the Google and Apple API, and the way that that system is designed is essentially quite privacy-preserving. The NHS had begun to develop an app that was using a centralised database, so it collected and sucked all the data to a central level so that the NHS could use it. Whilst there's yet to be a date set for launch, it's been reported users of the app will be able to identify their symptoms, order tests, scan QR codes to check into public places like bars and restaurants, and see if there's been a COVID-19 outbreak associated with the location they've visited. All this raises a lot of questions. Will our personal and location data be safe? Could you one day have to have the app to go into pubs or offices? Is it our moral duty to download the app and use it properly? Once these technologies are in place, it seems like we're going to run into potentially all sorts of problems. One question might be, how does the NHS extricate itself from this contractual arrangement? Can the NHS extricate itself from this arrangement? What would it take to undo the digital infrastructure that's in place? Welcome to this first part of a special Science Weekly. To delve into some of these issues, Ian Sample, science editor at The Guardian, sat down virtually, of course, in late July with two experts to hear their views. Carly, Sita, thanks hugely for um, joining us on this. How's lockdown been for both of you? Carly? It's been okay. I have a toddler um, who was home for three months and that was very challenging. But since he's been back at nursery, it's completely fine. Although I feel like I can't complain because I know that Sita has twins. (laughs) So double the trouble. Sita, Sita, how's it been for you? Oh, gosh, up and down. So yeah, I have twin daughters in year two. And um, yeah, homeschooling was, I mean, in some ways, it was kind of fun. But really, then the pain of, oh, we have to do this every week for a long time um, started to really... um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been really difficult to balance, find balance in all of this. Um, and have you both been sort of confined? Hi, my name is Carly Kind, and I'm the director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is a research institute with a remit to ensure that data and AI work for people and society. 
My name is Sita Pena-Gangadaran. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I also co-lead a research and organizing project called Our Data Bodies. I look at issues of data profiling, surveillance, privacy, and historically marginalized communities, focusing both in the United States and increasingly in Europe. From the beginning of this pandemic, track and trace apps have been promoted as a pretty key tool to help us emerge from lockdown and deal with whatever life is like after lockdown and as this epidemic over here, the pandemic globally continues. They immediately raise concerns, though, not least about privacy, around who could have access to the data now and in the future, what sorts of data would be logged and so on. Carly, just to kick off, are these applications regulated? Is there proper or any oversight of these apps? The short answer is no. The long answer is slightly more complicated. Um, but I think it's probably useful to talk about which app we're referring to here. If we speak just about the UK situation, which is different from other countries, in the UK, the app is still under development. It's being developed by NHSX, which is the tech arm of the NHS. And there was an ethics advisory board set up to oversee the development of the app. That's since been disbanded. Um, so aside from that group, there's no formal oversight structure other than the kind of internal workings of NHSX. And that's despite quite a lot of encouragement from stakeholders outside the NHS to consider putting in place some type of independent advisory body to oversee the development of the app or indeed some type of legislative uh, instrument to regulate it, as has been done in other countries such as Australia. But at the moment, as it stands in the UK, there's no oversight mechanism um, formally set up around the app. Have we not adopted um, data protection rules, though, that are equivalent to GDPR in Europe? Yeah, of course, there are existing data protection regulations, which apply to some of the questions that are raised around the use of contact tracing apps. But there are other questions which aren't answered by data protection legislation, which means that the app might fall into some gaps. And because of that, there is quite a strong argument for primary legislation or specific legislation to ground these types of technologies. That might include, for example, are employers allowed to make use of a contact tracing app a condition of returning to employment? That's not a question that's answered by data protection law. It may be a question that's ultimately answered by employment law or discrimination law, but it would require, you know, going through the courts and being challenged in order to, for that to become clear. And the advantage of primary legislation is that it could make some of those issues clear up front and could stipulate the conditions upon which the contact tracing app is rolled out. Another area that's not explicitly answered by data protection law is how long the data can be kept. So data protection law does require data minimization. It requires you to delete data as soon as it's no longer necessary, but that it doesn't imply any strict time limits on the use of data. And as we've found through research with members of the public is an area of concern that people have. Will this data be kept for a long time? Will it be used by other government agencies? So one way to increase public trust around that might be to explicitly state in a piece of legislation, this data could only be kept for X number of years. Are there technological fixes that can kind of build in data privacy into the, the design and function of these kinds of apps? And I hate to say it, but 
does this actually really matter considering the huge volumes of data we're already sort of spewing out into third party companies and onto the, the internet and so on, you know, including health data? That's a really good question. I think it's quite a complicated one to answer. So it's true that technology, in particular, the technology around contact tracing app can set up the data infrastructure in different ways so that it might be more or less privacy preserving. So many people will have heard about the Google and Apple API that they've designed, which enables their devices to do contact tracing using Bluetooth. And the way that that system is designed is essentially quite privacy preserving in the sense that the data is collected and stored on an individual's phone and is not returned to a centralized server. The NHS had begun to develop an app that was using a centralized database. So it collected and sucked all the data to a central level so that the NHS could use it. So on its face, a decentralized system would be more privacy preserving than a centralized system. There is also an area of consideration which needs to be taken into account, which is what is the public health imperatives around using contact tracing? What is What do we actually need this app for? And what types of data do public health authorities actually need in order to do their job? And it may be that actually a centralised system would allow them access to more data, which would enable a more effective public health response. We conducted a public deliberation exercise with 30 members of the public over a three-week period where we walked through all these different factors and elements. And for them, it wasn't a a clear trade-off of privacy versus the pandemic, which is how some have framed this discussion around centralised versus decentralised. But it is clear that questions of solidarity and are we in this together and can we help each other are relevant to people when they think about whether or not they should share their data. It's also clear from that conversation that people are more willing to share data with the NHS than they are with private companies, for example. But when it comes to the NHS, there's a level of trust in that institution that's not mirrored elsewhere. And that means there's a greater burden for them in how they put their systems together because they need to maintain that trust in order to run an effective health system. So they basically have to be better than the private companies that we see online that take our data in untowards ways. Sita, can I just get us to back up a little bit? For I'm aware there might be some listeners who probably haven't been following this all as closely as others, and they may not appreciate the meaningful differences between the centralised model and the decentralised model. What are the differences between these two models? The way that I understand it is that you have a sort of token on your phone that is sensitive to Bluetooth communication. And every time you pass someone else who has the Bluetooth app on, you do an exchange. There's an exchange, a sort of handshake that takes place between the phones. It's this sort of um, series of anonymous handshakes, but that still is able to identify those that are in your proximity. That is different from, say, there's an indication that you have a positive test result and that that information is then communicated back to a central server that's held by one institution, for example, and that raises more questions about privacy and data protection than this sort of anonymous handshake system. 
this sort of decentralized privacy preserving proximity tracing protocol that was first developed in uh, by a consortium of academic researchers in Switzerland and elsewhere. Um, and that then became, uh, or I guess inspired uh, Apple and Google to um, retweak their own protocol. See, to this involvement of Google and, and Apple specifically on this is this question of what is their motivation? And I'm not you know, suggesting that big tech companies by definition are evil, but one has to ask, okay, what, why are these companies doing this? Why are they involved in app development and supporting apps? And I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, Apple and Google have been talking about the real need for privacy, transparency and consent, and it all sounds very noble, but they are doing this for some commercial reason, presumably. It is important to celebrate the fact that we've moved from a centralized to a decentralized model, but that even with a decentralized model, you can still have, um, for example, targeting of consumers, of end users, based on what's stored locally on their phones, for example. And so let's take the example of photos that are stored on your phone. You could still have, um, or an app could still analyze those photos locally and make a suggestion as to maybe how you organize your photos or who you should be contacting on the basis of you know, who you've been taking photographs of. Now, that's kind of a silly example, but I don't think that decentralization excludes analysis and targeting on the basis thereof. So that type of targeting might benefit, for example, Apple or Google, rather than public health professionals that really benefit from more granular types of data. So even with uh, privacy-preserving protocols, even with privacy-by-design technology, I think we're still in a situation where the bigger tech companies are creating a sort of stranglehold on public health infrastructure in ways that I find really worrisome and path-determining. To build on what was just being said about being beholden to these companies, I mean, the answer may not even be a commercial reason. The answer may just be because they can. And that's still a pretty worrying answer. You know, as we've talked about earlier in the program, the idea that, as Cedar said, that they have a stranglehold over digital infrastructure and can sway the development of public health responses to this crisis through choosing a particular technical infrastructure for contact tracing apps is is a is a bit of a wake-up call about just how much of the world's digital infrastructure is under the control of two companies. That is really a big takeaway from this, which is just how much power they hold over the infrastructure that powers our daily lives. What worries me similarly is that there is an immense bargaining power that Apple and Google have. And I worry about dependencies that are created once these technologies are in place and we're no longer at the beginning. It seems like we're going to run into potentially all sorts of problems. 
one question might be, how does the NHS extricate itself from this contractual arrangement? Can the NHS extricate itself from this arrangement? What would it take to undo the digital infrastructure that's in place? And I think that's a really complicated and messy question. It certainly has happened before, right? In the UK, we've seen a number of failed attempts to improve the online universal credit system and with great impact on beneficiaries, on participants in the program. We want to avoid that messiness, but we don't know what it's going to take. I don't think we're properly planning for that exit strategy that we might very well need in the future. Can I ask you both, do you think that one way or another, we are on a path to adopting this kind of technology and for it to become normalized at some point, whether it's for COVID, whether it's for flu, we, we've, we've started the ball rolling now. Earlier, Carly mentioned that uh, there's an enormous amount of trust in the NHS. There's public trust in the NHS. And it made me think that it might behoove the government to think about actually using NHS workers, right, and sort of centering the experience of NHS workers and the knowledge of NHS workers in sort of communicating what might be effective and what actually might germinate or sustain public trust in the NHS and its capacity to confront the challenges of COVID-19. And that digital contact tracing might be a part of that, but it really needs to be taken in context, in the whole context, right? So that we understand that the integrity of our, uh, our, um, our public health Right, the, the success of our public health really depends on these interlocking systems of support. And who better to articulate that than the people that have been on the front lines supporting us as we move through this pandemic? From what I know about the NHS's work at the moment to redesign the app, I think that they certainly have long-term ambitions for this. And maybe that's a more permanent infrastructure to enable the NHS to communicate with people in a digital way. I know they have lots of ambitions for the app that goes far beyond the exposure notification element that's been discussed to date. And that may ultimately be a good thing. I think there's a lot of rationale for you know, better use of digital services within the NHS, whether it be video conferencing. I don't know about you, but during the pandemic, I've been fortunate to have some video calls with uh, doctors. Um, and it, it's been quite incredible to see them make that shift over such a quick period of time and has made my life better to be able to have a vid- video consultation. And there are definitely questions about how the NHS could use an app more broadly and how they might be needing to do health surveillance over a longer period of time and how digital technologies can augment that. I think that's a great conversation to have. I think it would be a real shame if technology infrastructure built on the fly to respond to an emergency uh, became embedded without any questioning over whether it's still democratically acceptable in non-pandemic times. That's why having things like sunset clauses or commitments to end uh, certain types of activities at the end of the crisis is a really important safeguard. That was Carly Kind and Sita Pena Gangadaran speaking to Ian Sample. Since recording this episode, the British government have announced that the new app will soon be tested by members of the public. 
According to a paper published on the government's website, the app will allow citizens to identify symptoms, order a test, feel supported during the period of self-isolation, scan QR codes in venues they've visited, and identify when they've been exposed to people with COVID-19. So watch this space. In the next episode, Ian, Carly and Sita will be discussing some of the potential societal issues that might fall out of using a track and trace app, including the over-surveillance of marginalised communities, and who gets a say in how the app actually works. Why would you, in that context where you have very low reason to trust certain institutions that say they're supposed to care about you and um, provide you welfare, but they don't, right? Why would you then think that an app is going to do the trick? Join us again on Thursday. See you then. The Guardian. 